Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we discuss how engineers can stay relevant on the job. We also cover buggy whips, zip drives, and robot art. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 94, Relevance, October 29th, 2015. So Brian, are you a thought leader? What on earth is that? <laughs> well, I, I think it's supposed to mean that when uh, a certain subject uh, comes to mind, you have a thought about a subject that they would turn to you, that, that you would be the first, uh, the first person they'd turn to for advice and uh, explanation and uh, you know, insight into a particular subject. Is that synonymous with subject matter expert? Mm, maybe. But but you could be a subject matter expert and not be a thought leader because people wouldn't think of you first. They didn't. They're not aware of you. Hmm. Thought leader sounds very new age, and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find pejoratives here. And I'm <laughs> pejoratives you can use on a family podcast. Yes. Oh, this is a family podcast. Oh, wish I would have known that a couple of years ago. <laughs> Well, we, we, we try to uh, uh, to keep our content suitable for, for all members of the public. Well, I don't know, but uh, – so, Jeff, are you a thought leader? Um, I don't know. I don't – so, I think in in certain circles, I probably am. I mean, in, in certain groups, people would say, you know, if I want to know about engineering education, well, Jeff is teaching a college course, you know, engineering. Maybe he's the right person to ask. But I don't think in a you know a wide range. It's certainly not a, a large part portion of the population considers me a thought leader. But I don't think that's necessarily uh, the end of the world. I mean, um, we can be quite effective on our engineering jobs just being a, a thought leader. I think in a small area, uh, you know, a small group at work or a small group of people in the same field. So here's another question: Have you All ever right. described somebody as a thought leader in a professional sense? No. But I have used the term thought leader because it gets used in so many marketing things. Yes, I, 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 was, I, was, I was about to pivot to the type of people who use the word thought leader. Right. I, perhaps, perhaps we just circulate in the wrong populations, the wrong circles. Yeah, that's why our pay grades are probably so limited. <laughs> probably. Now, is there a, a term for someone who is um, – you know, the person you first think of that you do not want to ask because they're going to have an opinion that is so, uh, so strong and polarizing. You don't want it to come out to light. Thought hole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call myself that. I don't think I've ever heard anyone described as a thought hole. I think I, should, I like it. I should trademark that. Uh -huh. I, I think you should. I, I was going to go with with it had to be either anti thought leader or leader or thought anti leader, but I couldn't figure out which which was the appropriate. I think thought hold is even better. Yes, or thought thought lemming. <laughs> <laughs> well, so regardless of whether we we are or are not thought leaders, we thought we'd discuss in this episode the importance of being relevant and how we might become relevant, how we stay relevant, why it's important to be relevant, uh, what it means to be relevant. And this is cert something that certainly can sort of uh, wax and wane over our careers. Uh, sometimes we're, we're more relevant than in others, but we thought we'd uh, give some, some time to, to talk about that in this episode. If we, if we look up the, uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it tells us that relevance is having significant and demonstrable bearing on the matter at hand. And so it's not just uh, having, you know, abilities, but having abilities that are significant and demonstrable. So uh, do you, have you guys ever thought about your relevance or, or uh, worried about whether you're relevant at work or not? 
I worry about it in the long term. <clears throat> you know, I think there's a cliche and I don't know how real it is and, you know, the quote unquote privilege of youth. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I worry that somehow my skills will age out of the industry. Mm-hmm. And to me, a loss of relevance is synonymous with that, but. Okay. So, so do you see a difference between relevance and employability? No, I, I mean, clearly they're linked, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our, our ability to market our skills is clearly related to how relevant those skills are. Sure. And unfortunately, we we exist in a world where the skills that are required change from year to year and decade to decade. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I think changes, though, is the the context, the problem that's uh, come into the company or organization. And so I think, you know, you may get hired because you have exceptional design skills, but all of a sudden – the problem with the company is something to do with sales or marketing. Well, now you may, you're no less employable for your design skills, but you're not really relevant to this problem because your skills don't address the problem at hand. Absolutely. And also it depends on the nature of your company. Some companies quickly call their unnecessary talent, whereas other companies will try to keep even latent brain talent around in case their skills are needed again, because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like sales where the cost of acquiring a new customer is significant compared to the cost of keeping them. Yeah. Cost of cost of finding new talent is often very high. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, probably when, when you're bringing people into the company, you hire them because you think they will be relevant but again, this is something that sort of uh, uh, shifts over time. You don't, you, you never know. So is there a difference between relevance and competence, Jeff? I think there certainly is. Is it just context? Well, so, so I think that the, the, where I would put it is relevance is how someone else perceives your abilities and your, your input and your value. So you could be competent. You could be the world's great greatest designer. But if if no one knows about your design skills or they don't they don't believe in your design skills, then they won't see you as relevant to the problem at hand. They're going to turn to uh, those things that they feel like they can count on and they know are reliable and make sense to you know the problem they're trying to solve. And and no matter what skills you might have, if if others don't perceive that those skills then you're not going to be considered relevant. Well, and as we were talking about a little bit ago, if those are not the skills that are needed at that time, mm-hmm. you're completely competent or you may be completely competent. You're just not relevant to that issue. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, when we talk about, uh, I, I mean, we hear people talk about, well, wanting to stay relevant or, or become more relevant. And that's, uh, that's kind of a, a contextual thing. It depends on which problem and which organization at which point in time as to whether you'll be considered relevant or not. And so we, you know, so we've mentioned a few things, employability, that's important. Competence, that's important. But relevance is sort of another, you know, uh, tangential, but, but, you know, overlapping uh, skill that we need as engineers. We need, we need people to see us as relevant to the problems of the organization. Gosh, man, relevance sounds way too closely linked with employability, which unfortunately is probably the trap of a for-profit engineer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would argue, and this may be because of the the employer I work for. I would hire not for some of its current relevance, but their potential future relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <clears throat> And where I work, we hire a lot of, a lot of engineers out of school that, you know, we've said many times before you, when you get graduate college, you don't know enough to actually engineer. It's a learner's permit. 
Yep. They're really not relevant. They don't have the the skills, the competency in the areas that are important yet. But mm-hmm. over the course of three, four years, they can be made relevant. So does that mean they're not employable? Obviously not, because we're employing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that is is part of it. Uh, the further you go along in the, your career, the more important it is that you're seen relevant to at least your your industry, your field. And so, as you mentioned, Adam, if you're hiring somebody right out of college, you don't care if they're relevant. You're you're basically hiring their trainability. They've completed a an engineering degree, and you assume, hey, they're trainable. But if you're if you're hiring for a job, you know, VP of engineering, twenty years later. Uh, you better be relevant. You, you know, you better be seen as the person that can uh, come in and immediately have a, uh, as the definition says, a significant and demonstrable bearing on the matter at hand. I was hoping when you went into that discussion of hiring people, Adam, that you were going to be talking about uh, anticipating future talent requirements or job skills that don't really exist in the marketplace. Do you find yourself doing that at all? You know, I I don't know. I'm not close enough to the actual hiring process to know. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, again, we're going on, I'm, at least I'm going on cliches here, of the trope in engineering discussions of hiring the new hotshot out of college who knows how to use the CAD system that nobody else knows how to use, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, because because organizations can recognize that while it may not be useful for them at the moment, it will ultimately be relevant. Oh yeah, no, I don't see a lot of that. Um, just because I know we're not in a major period of upheaval with respect to engineering tools. Yeah, and um, to be honest, where I work is um, well, it's it's government, it's bureaucratic, it is slow to change and adopt and and move to new tools. Um, just, you know, that's, that's the way it is. And, you know, generally people can pick up tools. It, it, that's not the kind of thing that I see a lot of hiring based on. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in, in the hiring process or what our, our criteria are, but I, I see it more as this is someone we can, they've got a couple of core skills that we can't teach, you know, um, ability to learn, you know, that ability to do critical thought and ability to work with people. You can teach, you can teach the new tool, but we also move very slowly. So we can take the time to teach the new tool or learn the new tool. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably very different in a, uh, profit driven organization, which, you know, all that time spent on learning the new tool is, is taken out of the profit. So it's better to pay up front. You're expected to do it on your own time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. What was the joke when Apple Swift came out that HR was already putting out uh, job recs for two years of Swift experience? <laughs> right. Brand new programming language. And, and as soon as it came out, they wanted people that had two years of experience. Well, that's HR though. Yes, but that's that's for every job. They whatever they whatever they're hiring, they list whatever skill they think you need, and then they say two or three years of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you were reminding me, Brian, about what uh, Malcolm Gladwell has called the uh, quarterback problem, and uh, his uh, this little quote out of his uh, New Yorker article says this is the quarterback problem. There are certain jobs where almost nothing you can learn about candidates before they start predict how they'll do once they're hired. So how do we know whom to choose in cases like that? And I think that's the same thing with uh, with engineering. You can you can go on uh, GPA or you can go in uh, programming skills or something like that. But do you really know how that how that person is going to work out as an engineer ten years down the road? I think that's a difficult proposition. Do you care? Well, if you're the owner of the corporation and you you think you're going to be there for many years? Yes. If, well, you're the, I, I, if you're the hiring manager and you think you're going to be gone in a year, maybe not. Oh, well, I was more thinking about I, – I was kind of internalizing what you were saying and I was wondering if people making hiring decisions often think 10 years out or they do they think in the next six months. 
And yeah, they, can, can I tolerate this person? I, I, I would claim that they think in the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oftentimes they're hiring based on whatever pain they've been feeling in the last three to six months. They want to cure that pain. Uh, and they just hope that whoever they're hiring will be around and, and uh, uh, adaptable to whatever pain points come, down, come along down the field. Or down the road. You, you raise an interesting point because oftentimes in engineering organizations, you're only allowed to hire when something is horrifically behind schedule towards <laughs> the end of the program. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you're hiring people for work that is not very similar to the stuff that's done at the beginning of a program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not hiring people who, you know, predominantly can plan and execute a project from the very beginning you're hiring cleanup artists if you will yeah yeah well there, there was a, uh, uh, a a theory that was uh i think it was lewin had a, a model of, of organizational change but basically the idea was that the the organization basically how it ran remained frozen most of the time um and so there were these periods in time when it would something would happen and this and the organizational structure would unfreeze and everybody would scramble to make changes while they could. And then, you know, eventually it would refreeze and nobody could make any other, you know, changes either in, uh, in direction or organizational structure, you know, what those types of things. And so, uh, the idea was when the time came, you better be ready to pounce because, uh, it, it may not change for a, a good time in the future. Sounds like a organizational musical chairs. <laughs> yeah. Yes, isn't most of life or musical chairs of some form? Yeah, isn't it amazing how kindergarten prepared us for the rest of our lives? <laughs> I'm, I I need more of the naps and cookies. Do you? Sometimes I think that's all I need. Cad naps and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, actually, I probably need fewer of the cookies, but I do like the cookies and uh, <laughs> uh, the, the naps seem very appealing uh, quite often. So. Yes. Yes. So, so what ways are there for an engineer to be relevant? Well, you may recall that we, uh, we talked about innovation in a uh, prior episode and, and, uh, we talked about the fact that some people innovate in a very structured manner and other people innovate, uh, sort of outside the box. Uh, and so there's a wide range for, for people to be innovative. And I think there's a wide range for, for people to be relevant. Uh, as in, engineers, we may be uh, relevant at a very abstract level. We may be doing you know, fundamental research or, or even applied research. Uh, we might be doing strategic planning uh, where we're, we're dealing with very abstract ideas, or we may be working on uh, very you know, specific issues, uh, manufacturing or quality assurance or you know, customer assistance, where there's a specific problem that we have to solve. But I think that it just as there's a wide range of engineering jobs and duties and tasks, uh, there's a wide range of ways for an engineer to be relevant. That we don't all have to be, you know, master inventors to be relative in our uh, to be relevant in our field. That uh, uh, we can take our t- our skills and our talents and and make ourselves relevant to the problems that the organization is facing. Now it just seems like, uh, I mean, these are career paths that aren't to be taken or changes, if you will, not to be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. Like you wouldn't hop from fundamental research to um, customer assistance. I'm just trying to pick opposite ends of the, uh, of the spectrum here without knowing that, you know, or the other way around customer assistance to fundamental research. Those generally are one way tickets. Mm -hmm. At least that's my perception. Maybe it's not true. But the point I think I'm trying to make is that people talk about, well, how does an engineer stay relevant? And I think it's an individual for each of us. It's for each of us. It's going to be different. We each have our own strengths and, and we work in, in sometimes very different organizations facing very different types of problems. And so it's hard to say, you know, here is a recipe for how you make yourself relevant you know, I think it's more a set of attitudes in, in what way can I contribute to what the organization is trying to accomplish in that way we can uh, try to be relevant, but, but I can't say, well, go out and get your PE license or go out and get a certificate for programming in SolidWorks 
that's going to make you relevant. It may or may not, depending on uh, where you are in your career and who you're working for. Well, outside of outside of that, uh, I guess my my observation is it seems that if you are in an organization where you know uh, shifting mm-hmm. um, is your means to stay relevant, oftentimes you would then leave the organization. Um, you'd seek to continue to exercise your core competency somewhere else. Sure. Unless you really had no other options. Yeah. So, so I've worked at places where as they were starting to grow, they would need, uh, since I was an equipment designer, they, you know, the company would need equipment. They would hire designers to design the equipment and there'd be a group of us in the design group. And then as the company grew and you know, things sort of expanded and the operations expanded. Then all of a sudden it was like, well, we can't uh, be spending all our time worrying about these details of the design. We need now to hire out, you know, to, uh, to shop out the design to outside firms that can do it. And so our old designers are now going to become design managers and their time is going to be spent overseeing the projects and documenting the projects and making sure, making sure that things go uh, smoothly and correctly. And that's fine. But if your passion in life is designing machinery or electronics or whatever you want to design, and that happens in the organization you're with, then yeah, what choice do you have? You you either say, well, for the sake of the job and the you know the stability of retaining the job and the the salary, I'm going to stay here, or you decide I really want to do design work. I have to go somewhere else. I also should state that there is kind of a geographical bias to what I'm saying. I happen to live in a wonderful city that has tons of engineering opportunities. I know that's not the case everywhere in the world where you could, you could be in a small town or, you know, a remote part of the globe that has one engineering business. And, you know, if you don't want to uproot yourself or get a visa somewhere else, you know, (laughs) That may be your only option. So, Jeff, it sounds like, and this is something I, at least I think I've seen, you're saying Mm -hmm. that, you know, one way to stay relevant is the ability to move kind of back and away from that that very specific end of the spectrum, and maybe even just on a temporary basis, um, like an example I have to to stay relevant is um, being involved in standards development which mm-hmm. is, is very abstract compared to day-to-day design, but it, it's a way to, to build that relevance and maybe mm-hmm. be, the ability to move back and forth a little bit or on a, a very scale, on a limited scale, at least the ability to move to a slightly more abstract level and then back. Does that sound? Uh, so my point is not that having specific skills or, or specifically applied skills are less valuable in any way. Uh, just that we can, as engineers, we can apply our skills and be relevant, uh, meaningful to our organization at either a, a high, very abstract level or a, a lower, uh, sorry, not lower, but a different, more specific level. Uh, but you do raise a good point, Adam, in that, uh, for instance, if you are involved in manufacturing and you are very good at knowing how you make disc brakes and you've spent a number of years getting familiar with the the vendors, the suppliers of disc brake material, you know the uh, the characteristics of the metals that are used in making disc brakes, you know the stampings that are involved, you know you are a disc brake person. You're going to have trouble going to a medical device company to get hired. You're going to have trouble going to an HVAC company to get hired, right? And so, uh, whereas somebody who is doing, say, fundamental research at a high level may be able to research, uh, shift their research a little better than someone who, who has talents in, in a very specific area. On the other hand, if you have those skills, you know, you are very good at disc break, solving disc break manufacturing problems, and if somebody needs that skill, boy, they really need that skill, and, and you are valuable on the market. There are still buggy whip designers. Are there? <laughs> Just, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I'd say it, it, it can kind of run the other way where, um, if I'm writing a new standard, um, for something at, at a very high fundamental level, 
I want the input of somebody who's going to have to apply that mm-hmm. um, because they're going to have input on, on how that works. Um, instance, like uh, if I'm at a, at a group writing a, a new standard on how traffic control will be handled or a modifying mm-hmm. the standard on how traffic control will be handled, I want the input of the guys out in the field doing the construction inspection, which is a, a very, very much more specific area than developing that standard. But that input is valuable and that ability to move from that, that inspection level up to that standard writing level and back. Um, right. I see that as, as important or a way to stay, a, w- a way to maintain that relevance. And then, you know, if you were on that standards committee and you're, you're now inspecting, mm-hmm. you're the, you're the kind of person that someone would go to then because, well, you wrote that standard or you were involved in that standard. This is, you know, so how do I apply it here? And all of a sudden you become the expert. Yeah. And and that is sometimes that's the hard part to, uh, to figure out too, whether your, your skills are relevant in that it may not be your specific technical skills, but also the background, uh, the things that you've experienced in other areas that don't seem initially to be important, but may be tangentially very relevant, uh, to what you're trying to accomplish. And those things are kind of hard to, hard to know in advance, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, uh, it's serendipity. If you, if your skills happen to apply, your background happens to apply to the problem at hand. So I, I talked a little earlier about, uh, the importance of being recognized that, that relevance was something that, that was how other people perceive you. And so that kind of brings up the issue of your technical relevance or maybe technical competence versus social recognition. And that is you may be an extraordinary designer or, or disc brake manufacturing problem solver. But if nobody knows about it, you're not going to be perceived as relevant. Uh, that you, you have to find some sort of balance between your time spent developing technical expertise and developing some sort of recognition of your skills that you, you have to interact with the world to let the, the world know about your, your abilities. This is this, of course, is something that that engineers don't like to do. As soon as they have to do any promoting of their skills, they see that as selling out and uh, uh, turning to the dark side, shall we say? Uh, but there's there's some balance. I mean, even when we don't do that, I, I think we we've all, if you've been in industry for a while, you've seen those that uh, just sort of naturally are able to sell their skills, and they're not always the most talented. And you you wonder, well, how did that person? Uh, get ahead. How did that person get the promotion? You go, well, they know how to sell themselves. Well, yes, that that's often the case. And that's not, you know, selling yourself isn't necessarily the thing you want to be doing all the time, but there is some balance there. If you're not able to let other people know about your skills, you're not going to be perceived as relevant. Yeah, you're only as good as however, as you're only as good as everybody else thinks you are. Well, <laughs> you, I don't know if you're as good as you are good. But you won't get the opportunities if people don't believe in your skills. I mean, in desperation, they may take a chance on you and you get a chance to prove yourself. Uh, but other than that, they're going to turn to somebody they think they have confidence in that, mm-hmm. that will be able to do the, the job at hand. So there was a, there was a book uh, that came out, oh, several years ago. Uh, I'll find it here in a second. I've got it. It was by Daniel Pink, and it was called The Cell is Human, The Surprising to- Truth about moving others, uh, written in 2012. And so his uh, proposition was that in this era of uh, social media and everything being decentralized, that we are continually having to sell our own abilities and our own interests, and that whether we like it or not, we're basically, as he, he titles an early chapter, we're all in sales now. So what do you think? Is that, uh, is that the case? Are we all in sales now? Well, I think to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's new. I think anyone who's worked in a big organization can certainly see that those who are good at self-promotion certainly see a disparate, great, uh, or disparate amount of the advancement and reward. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, if you're a, if you're a wallflower, it certainly sucks, but, you know, 
it feeds back into the original discussion with respect to relevance. People have to know what you can do. Mm -hmm. So so this was certainly something that I struggled with at various points in my career. And I don't know as I have a good answer, but let's say I'm, I'm good at some particular skill, you know? So we talked in a previous episode about nuts and bolts. So my ability to say, uh, to, to, in designing a machine, again, I go back to what I know, um, designing machine, I can pick out a, an appropriate fastener and, uh, I can, you know, make sure that they're not going to, in the environment we have, they're not going to rust over time. I've got the right material. I've got the right strength. I've got the right coating. Uh, I make sure that, uh, the torque uh, specs are correct in manufacturing it when we assemble it to, so it won't fall apart over time. And so I've done a whale of a good job in picking out the, the fasteners, I've designed the, the parts so the threads are correct, uh, the right, uh, the right uh, dimensions, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. And so I think, well, whereas I think that's a valuable skill, the organization sees that, well, he just picked out a fastener. So how do you, if you have this skill and you think it's important, how do you go about selling it, you know, explain to your boss, well, hey, boss, I think I need... I need more uh, more responsibility in the, in the design area because I I can pick out fasteners, or I need a raise. I should I deserve a raise or I deserve a promotion for my my design talents. Yeah, and the problem is that there's very few conventions um, in I guess workplace behavior on what is the appropriate level or type of humble bragging. <laughs> I mean, right. honestly, if you think about. Could you imagine a class where they actually taught you the appropriate level of self-promotion? Like, what would that even look like? Like, if you had to give somebody advice, I know we can all think of people who maybe don't do enough self-promotion or, you know, you think, well, they're certainly more brilliant than they get credit for, et cetera, et cetera. The, like, how could you give them reasonable advice? I would dread giving that person advice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, and I think a lot of it is in how you present the idea, uh, too. If if you have sort of a, a, a theatric flair or an artistic flair, and so when you're uh, presenting the, you know, the results of your work, uh, I don't know how you present, you know, thread dimensions in an exciting way. But if I were able to present thread dimensions in an exciting way, the people would go, hey – that's very exciting. I want to be, I want to be associated with that exciting development. And, and, and some people have a real knack for that. I don't. So, but so is it excitement do. or is it entertainment? It's a little of both. It's theatrics. Ah, so if, if you're an inherent show person, you automatically have the self-promotion covered. There's no need for the direct, you know, during a review, to remind your boss how valuable you are and how many raises you deserve. I don't, I don't think that's the case either. I mean, I think that it's not bad to remind people in, in, in an, in an employment situation, in a, in a family situation, you may want to watch it, but in a, in a, uh, uh, organizational situation, you want to uh, remind people of the value of your, of your services to that organization. Cause people, people are people, you know, they may forget and they may go, they may take you for granted if you're constantly doing a good job and never saying anything about, Hey, I, you know, I saved us $400 uh, today by doing this. I saved us $400,000 this year by, you know, reducing this, this cost. You, you've got to remind people of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you said um, something about the people's natural ability and natural theatrics. Mm-hmm. I think that's a skill that can be developed. Actually, I, I'm, I know that's a skill that can be developed. Sure. Because that is a skill I had developed um, myself. And it, it just takes time in the right situations and putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And that is something that can be developed and I think is an important skill for, um, well, anyone in the workplace, really. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree. And I, I think the, the key point there was a willingness to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation because it's like riding a bike. No, well, I guess I'm sure somebody does, but very few people jump on a bike for the first time in their life and immediately know how to ride it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you fall a few times and there's no way to get good at riding a bike except falling a few times or, or playing a musical mm-hmm. instrument. There's an even better example. 
you know, you, you pick up a clarinet or saxophone or a, a brass instrument, there's no way that you're going to be making beautiful music the first time you try to play that instrument. You're going to, you know, uh, you're going to, if you're uh, doing a reed instrument, you're going to, there's going to be a lot of squawking and squeaking before you finally figure out how to get the right tone out of that, that instrument. Yeah. You, you have to be willing to fail. Yeah. You got to play hot cross buns before you do uh, a, a Mozart <laughs> concerto. <laughs> It sounds like you've played hot cross buns at some point in your life. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure I did too at some point. It's been so many years I've forgotten exactly what we did. Uh, so so let me throw in – so this book by uh, Daniel Pink, uh, To Sell as Human, uh, he offers a, three areas that are important for selling to others. Now, uh, some of the reviewers of this book indicated that perhaps he sort of – intertwine too much the areas of sales and persuasion. And I think we're more interested in the persuasion area. But nonetheless, I'll give you the three areas that he talked about. And so the first one was uh, attunement. And that was, I'm quoting here from from an Amazon reviewer who was kind enough to uh, sort of highlight these. Uh, attunement was bringing oneself into harmony with individuals, groups, and context. And so, you know, the idea that you have to understand these people you have to uh, to empathize with them. You have to understand their problems. That's attunement. And so I guess in the organization, you have to really understand what it is the organization is trying to accomplish. Uh, the second one is buoyancy. And that is to uh, learn what to do uh, before, during, and after your sales encounters. And I think the, the big thing that uh, there was, sometimes you have to pitch your idea a lot of times and get turned down a lot of times but you have to be buoyant about it, right? You know, return to the surface and say, I'm ready to, to do it again. Also see, see delusional. <laughs> well, so yeah. So there, there's a fine line, right? Between delusion and persistence, right? How do how do you know which is which? I actually heard a great um, bit by a stand-up comedian about being, you know, in order to be good as a stand-up comedian or develop, you have to be delusional because you have to walk off stage when horrible things happen and say, that went okay. <laughs> yep. I imagine sales is the exact same. I'm sure it is. And, and, and to a certain extent, you know, engineering skills are too. Uh, you, you try things. I mean, certainly there's been in points in my life where I've tried, you know, machine ideas, mechanism ideas that just didn't work. There's, there's no book you're going to go into and figure out exactly which combinations are better than others. But you, you know, over time you learn, what works in the shop and what doesn't, what works on the manufacturing floor and what doesn't. Oh, that's a great idea for a book. What? Like everyone's got the hundred circuits that do this. How about the hundred circuits that don't work? <laughs> the hundred machine designs that are horrible or bridges that can't possibly work or didn't work. Oh man, we can make a fortune. So, it, but, but those are interesting, not in the fact that anybody would learn try to copy them. You don't want to do that, but that, that mm -hmm. you go through the process. It would be very, I, actually, it would be interesting to read a book about that where it talked about why it seemed like a good idea, but it didn't pan out. Oh, man. You, you, you have a spare 10 hours a week you want to contribute to, the, to that book? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right after my other six extracurricular activities. Yeah. I'll need more Mountain Dew. <laughs> this book idea is copyrighted by the Engineering Commons. <laughs> okay, I just bought us like another five years. <laughs> there you go, Adam. Right. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, uh, the third area that uh, Daniel Pink talks about in his book is clarity, uh, the capacity to make sense of murky situations. One of the most – and this – Reviewer says one of the most effective ways of moving others is to uncover challenges they may not know they have. And so again, I go I, to me that's persistence. I mean, how do you know what's really clarity? It's it's trying stuff. And if if your if your hunch pans out, you're suddenly brilliant. If your if your hunch doesn't pan out, you're adult for having suggested it in the first place. I hate books like that <laughs> because I can't I can't tell if this is wisdom or self help. I know horrible garble. Yeah, so I've quit reading business books because for a long time I was reading all kinds of business books and they all had seemed to have wisdom, but I never knew how to apply the wisdom. It it felt like every day I was winging it anyway, so 
why spend money on books reading about other people telling me how to live my life when I was still you know, on a day-to-day basis trying to figure it out for myself? Yeah, because because your description of the clarity point just seems so trivially simple that it shouldn't even be a point. <laughs> yes, we should, we should all be clear about our, our problems and our intentions, right? And so why, yes. why should there be any confusion whatsoever? Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, uh, it's a little bit like saying, I'm going to invert Occam's razor and make this way more complicated than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing a, a couple of these sources, um, the 21 principles of persuasion. I've also heard and not read that. What is it? Uh, is it the 48 power laws? Uh, I believe there's a book like that. Yeah. There's so many. There's so many of them that have a number in the title, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Robert Greene. Um, I'm. Well, I have been sporadically reading one of his books that's, I guess, similar to the Daniel Pink books and the Malcolm Gladwell books. Um, let's see, it's uh, Mastery, mm-hmm. and again, it's along the lines of probably the Malcolm Gladwell and Daniel Pink books, where it's like. I can't tell how much of this is just self-congratulatory crap and how much of it is actual wisdom and insight. Mm-hmm. And anytime I read it, I, I feel a little bit like anytime I, it feels a little bit too self-healthy. I feel dirty, you know, just like, <laughs> why, why, why did I get sucked into reading this? But then other times it'll, he'll, he'll have some truly insightful or historically interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that uh, the uh, the twenty one principles of persuasion article that you uh, mentioned, I don't know if it's worth a deep read, but the the article there uh, on the Forbes site just lists them and, and gives a quick highlight. I think that as a quick read, it it did make sense. Um, I'll just go through the four basics they have listed there. So the first one is persuasion is not manipulation, and I think that's certainly true. We're trying to get we're trying to convince others to see us in a different way and to do something that's in their best interest as well as our best interest. Uh, second is persuade the persuadable. And that is the idea that you can't persuade everybody. And so you need to focus on who it is you're trying to persuade because you can't, you can't be all things to all people. Uh, number three is context and timing. The idea that you, uh, we talked about the freezing and unfreezing model earlier. Uh, you know, you, you have to be, when the timing's right, you have to Take action because the timing may not always be right. And the fourth one is you have to be interested to be persuaded. You're never going to persuade someone who's not interested in what you're saying. And so uh, whatever your topic is, in, in my case, if I'm talking about you know the importance of threads, I have to find some, some way to make people interested in the, uh, my, uh, my thread specifications because if they're not interested, I can't persuade them that it's important. Yeah, rivets work just fine. <laughs> well rivets work very well they're just uh, very difficult to disassemble that's why god made drill bits <laughs> <laughs> yeah really easy to disassemble that way and why would you want to disassemble it anyway well when you're when you're doing machines at least you sometimes have to dis- disassemble them for maintenance or repair i don't know if there's a uh, an analog in the road building area uh, I've seen them destroy roads in order to rebuild them, but I disassembly, I don't think it's something that usually happens. I was going to say, that sounds like uh, bad marketing there. The machine needs maintenance time to buy a new one. <laughs> yes. So when you in, in manufacturing, uh, it's maintenance is a good thing. I suppose if you're selling consumer products, it may be a bad thing. So does that mean like that roads are actually closer to inkjet printers than we think? The cartridge is out, so we just buy a new one. <laughs> no, no, it's um, actually probably more on the other side, even probably farther from, farther away from the inkjet printer than the than the the equipment, uh, heavy machinery. Oh yeah, machinery. Yeah, yeah. It's probably machinery is between inkjet printer and road, but more expensive. Yeah. Well, same deal. Yeah. The ink, yes. 
<laughs> Being more expensive than a road, it, some days, yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm willing to bet per per pound the ink is more expensive. Oh, guaranteed. Road materials are cheap. You just need a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, as we were preparing for this, I was I was thinking about if you're seen as relevant, what does that mean? And and searching the internet for a lot of uh, articles about you know being relevant or staying relevant, and they took the attitude that in order to be relevant, you had to be the leader, you know, you had to be the innovator, and that if you were seen as a, if you were a follower, that you really weren't relevant. And I don't think that's true. I think that you can be relevant as a leader. Uh, or you could be relevant as a follower, or you can even be relevant as a rabble rouser, uh, somebody who's trying to uh, disrupt the system. The thought hole. <laughs> the thought <laughs> hole. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and and the uh, for whatever reason, when I was thinking about this, I the the image that popped to my mind was the uh, the parade scene in Animal House when you had the. Uh, uh, you had the band marching down the, the middle of the street, and so you had the leader in, in leading the band, and, and they were important. They were relevant because they were guiding the band in the direction it needed to be. Uh, you had the followers that were the band members that were staying aligned and trying to make sure that the, the band marched in order and uh, uh, well aligned. And then you had the the uh, guys from the Animal House that were obviously the rabble-rousers and disrupting and trying to make a statement uh, by disrupting the band and leading them into the the alley, as they <laughs> did. So I think that, you know, in this idea of relevance, you can be relevant as a leader. Uh, you can be relevant as a follower. You could be re- relevant as a rabble rouser. Now, there are obviously different political and economical outcomes associated with your choice of those. Uh, if you choose to always be a follower, you may have less control over what you do. Uh, you may not rise to the top of the uh, salary range, but you may be quite happy. If that's what you like doing, then certainly go ahead and do that. If if it's really important to you to be in charge or or just by your natural abilities or your, or as Adam has pointed out, your, your attained skills, uh, you become a leader, then that's, you know, that's certainly important as well. And if you think the system is completely messed up, well, then maybe your job is to be a, a rabble rouser. And to be relevant to the to the discussion of where your field or your organization or your department is going, uh, by uh, you know some sort of action that lets people know your displeasure about the current situation. So, I, you can be relevant in any of those ways. Well, and the current situation isn't always just to be a rabble rouser. Doesn't mean that you think it's wrong, but that it needs to be looked at. Yeah, yeah, and and there are certainly people that that disrupt the system just for the sake of disrupting the system. They love to see the chaos. And I'm not talking about that, uh, which, 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 which I think is probably more animal house. But, but I mean, if you, if you're basically taking a, a political statement or a, you know, you, you, as you've indicated, uh, Adam, you're, you're indicating your displeasure or, or maybe not even displeasure, but your perception that there is a problem with the current status quo. That's in my rabble rouser category. Well, I, I was going to say, um, I believe that there's a place for the devil's advocate mm-hmm. that just because you've been doing it this way and this is the status quo doesn't mean the status quo is right. It doesn't mean the status quo is wrong either. But if somebody doesn't question the status quo, you can't improve. Mm-hmm. Right. So you need that rabble rouser to make sure that the status quo doesn't stay the status quo unless that's the right way to be. Make sense at all? Yeah, there is mud, but, but but you have to weigh the costs, right? Yes. If you get, you may be seen. If you start making waves, you can be seen as uh, eventually may be seen as the redeemer, as a uh, somebody who saved the company or turned it at an important time. But but it's likely that people are going to see your ideas as being uncomfortable and unrealistic. So it's not like just because you have a bright idea that everybody will immediately say, "Hey." What a bright idea. I did with zip drives. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just, just wanted to pick a dead technology. <laughs> well, so, so, but zip drives at their, at a particular point in time were a useful technology. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm just picking on zip drives. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, it's like everything else, right? They were important. They were valuable. They were relevant until they weren't. Might have a few zip disks floating around. 
<laughs> I, I think I still do somewhere down in the basement. Still throw it in your super drive. Yeah. So we've, we've so far given uh, our uh, typical uh, answer as we do here on the engineering commons. And that is, it depends. How do you increase your relevance? It depends. How do you stay relevant? It depends. Do you want to be relevant? It depends. There you go. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've found interesting or, or uh, you know, in, in reading up on this and, and trying to consider what we might talk about is the idea that the nature of work is changing, that we're going through sort of a, a revolution and the power of computing is growing exponentially and that we're going to see, you know, the, the people with the, the artificial intelligence people are saying that we're going to see tremendous breakthroughs in the coming years. And so I just thought I'd throw this out. How might we best learn to work with the computers? If, if computing power is going to be something that's so strong that we no longer need to really do the computations ourselves, but we need to oversee the programs that do the computations. We need to have some more information about how uh, the computers work and how our work uh, relates to the computers and how what the computers do or these artificial intelligence systems uh, have an impact on our work as engineers. How do we get ready for that? I don't know that you can. Um, I am a bit nihilistic when these questions come up because, I mean, we talk about this as engineers and I think, honestly, we are the least important people that that question applies to because our work in bringing forth this second machine age, as I believe your link refers to it, mm-hmm. um, we're the people causing this. We're not necessarily going to be the ones who really have to adapt to it. So I think in terms of how society gauges the relevance of employment will be a response to the fruits of our work. So we may be the last to really feel this, if you will. Hmm. So I guess my thought would be that it it certainly can't be our technical skills. That is, everything that can be automated will be automated. And so if somebody can write an algorithm to do it quicker and faster than we can, somebody will write that, that algorithm to do it faster and quicker. So, yeah. so, so what is it that we bring as engineers to the table that cannot be programmed? Um, I don't think there's a real compelling argument that physical synthesis is going to like uh, synthesis of ideas is going to be automated. I mean, people have made the case that art can be created by robots. I, I, has everyone here seen the? popular youtube video humans need not apply i have jeff you i I may have but i don't recognize it uh you know they you know they try to universalize the fact that you know everyone's job is going to be taken by either a bot or a robot Mm -hmm. and you know i think they they stretch it's a very compelling video but they stretch in trying to say that you know even creative people the bots are coming for you etc etc Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they don't, you know, this music that we've been listening to in this video has been composed by a robot. Yeah. Muzak can be composed by robots, but I don't think they're going to be doing top 40 hits. You know, I, I doubt they're going to have very sophisticated levels of synthesis. Well, but 50 years ago, anything being composed by a robot um, would be viewed as incomprehensible. Not really. I mean, I, it's just, I, I, I remember seeing, I think it might have been at my university, but there were these paintings that were attributed to a artistic robot. And I, I imagine that they were probably at least 10, 20 years old. And while it's interesting and it's, you know, it's a nice trick, I don't think it's particularly technically compelling. I think it's, you know, when you drop the constraints of what you would consider to be art, you can just put a random number generator on a pic, you know, on a series of pixels and declare it to be art, mm-hmm. you know. But our but our perception of art is so much. Uh, so the art we wish wish to acquire says as much about us as it does the art. True. And so there are any number of, uh, you know, bands 
that are out there. I mean, there's for many years, there's been lots and lots of bands out there for people to choose from. And certain bands become popular for whatever reason. Uh, many of them are, are very talented uh, musicians. Some of them have been not so talented musicians. But it is the the buying the music buying audiences, listeners, uh, their interest in as much in that artist, right, as it is their music. I mean, the music may speak to them, but if they're going to become more than the casual listener, if they're going to go out and buy you know, more than the single, you know, they're going to buy the album and they're going to buy numerous albums. They have to have an interest in this person uh, that, that something about their, their way of singing or making music speaks to them and that they are, are willing to say, Hey, to their friends, Hey, I like this person so much. Hey, come listen to this music. And so if, if you have the music made by robots, do you think that's going to be interesting at the next dinner party to say, Hey, I want you to listen to this music that was made by the how robot. Well, I mean that, but that's already existed. I mean the, uh, and there's there's of course there's novelty to it. But I think mm-hmm. one thing you've kind of danced around would be context. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things have inherent human and uh, societal context right. in terms of what are the stylistic choices that are made by the artist and what is acceptable or what delights the populace. You know, imagine a robot that writes jokes. And I, I, I mean, not just like stringing together a bunch of phrases, then eventually finding one that looks like a knock-knock joke. But actually having an insight into the human experience and the context uh, of both language and cultural norms to create something funny. Right. I don't expect – and design is not that different. I don't expect – Human, I don't expect algorithms to be able to do that with any degree of sophistication anytime in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not just, it's not a raw computational problem. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it gets down to the fact that we don't understand the human brain and the notion that we can, <laughs> the notion that we're going to write software that somehow mimics it before we understand the human brain, I, I still think is, you know, I don't want to doubt them. I just, it's a little bit like fusion technology. There's been optimism in that area for so long, you know, because it's a, a relative, it's a vague problem. It's a poorly defined problem. And so people constantly get away with, you know, pontificating about it without, without necessarily producing, I don't want to say results, but yeah, results. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to constrain it. I think that soft AI is going to be here in big ways. It already is, you know, the did you mean in Google mm-hmm. is profoundly powerful. It's my spell checker now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and speech recognition that was sort of iffy 10 years ago seems just incredibly powerful now. Uh, Siri still sucks. But, <laughs> but I think that kind of stuff, I think soft, you know, specific AI can definitely or expert uh, expert systems can can will and already do definitely exist and will get better and more powerful. Mm-hmm. But those are also fairly limited in scope. Yeah. But, but your talk about the, the artistry of it all in its relevance to design makes me think about the fact that so many of the solutions, even, you know, design solutions are contextual, uh, that, that they have as much to do with the situation and the population and the you know the users, and so when you when you design something, you have to keep and think. Uh, you have to think about well, can it be made? Uh, n- not only will it operate well, but can it be made cheaply and effectively and efficiently with with the people that we have here in the shops we have here in the you know for the the people that that are your end market. Uh, will the people will the people in that end market see the idea as being? Uh, innovative or will they see it as being a continuation of existing solutions? Uh, there's so much to think about there. And I, as humans, I think we do that fairly easily. We don't think about it too much, but, but I agree with you, Brian, that could be difficult for the, uh, uh, for the artificial intelligence to, to carry out uh, quite so easily. And, and again, I think it's the AI or let's just say advanced software engineering at this point is going to go after the low hanging fruit the low-hanging profitable fruit. 
I can't imagine it's actually going to be extremely profitable to replace engineers. Um, I'm trying to imagine how a marketplace like that would work, but maybe I'm just too narrow-minded. So there, there's a lot of, you know, some of the, some of the things we talked about earlier. So somebody who's doing some of the jobs that an engineer might engineer might do uh, in uh, fundamental research. You know, maybe there's some algorithm now that can do, you know, the, the, if you set up the basic problem, they can, they can, well, I know their, their algorithms doing math, mathematical proofs, strategic planning. Maybe, you know, the algorithm is able to grab the, uh, the data and quickly do some sort of strategic planning that an engineer would do previously. Certainly there's a lot of, uh, in a lot of uh, businesses, there's a lot of documentation and, I don't even use the features in Altium that would tell me how much a part costs. I mean, that's, there's actually a, I feel like there's some sort of a limit or, or there's a saturation point for a lot of these tools at which point, you know, if it's three menu clicks into, or, or if it's an extension that needs to be added to the system, I'll simply do the search myself, even though, the people who design the software have thought this out better than I can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I want to take a step back. Automation's already affecting engineering. If you look at the number of people who would work on a project in terms of, you know, creating drawings, you know, uh, back in the, uh, let me just say back in the sixties, would you have actually had engineers drawing things? Uh, in the sixties, you wouldn't know, you probably would not, you'd have your drafts persons. Well, exactly. Even back then you would have people inking drawings. But that, uh, yeah, that's, that's my point. Yeah, I mean, the, let's just consider all of those people to be part of the engineering equation. You have had to, to some degree an automation of some of the engineering tasks. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're not immune. You know, and I think I'll I'll try to sum up a lot of what you said. You know, and and kind of the key to working with the computers is understand what computers are good at, and don't try to compete with the computer. Um, you know, I I have um, I know a few people who will uh, try to do a cost estimate, and they pull out their calculator and they're plugging in the numbers in they're typing all the numbers in a spreadsheet. The computer is very very good at that. Let the computer do that. Isn't the spreadsheet a computer? Yes. But, I mean, like, doing the math and filling in all the cells by hand. Hmm. Uh, and then summing down the column. Do that. Let the computer do the, the math part. The computer is very, very good at math. When it comes to the judgment call of, okay, so what price do I put in on this cost estimate? Like, in, in, a, in a bidding situation, that's something the computer isn't quite as good at because there's a – a bit of uh, judgment involved there. So that's, a, that's a good human skill. Find those areas that the human's good at, find those areas that the machine is good at and don't compete with the machine because it's going to win. No, oh, I would agree with that. I, and again, I, I want to be clear that I am optimistic for a future where robots do my job because then I won't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think oftentimes in these discussions, you know, AI or algorithms basically become shorthand for magic. Mm-hmm. It's it's less about a reasonable technical discussion and more about the the mystery of the unknown and the undefined, the currently undefined. Mm-hmm. Like none of us are AI people, nope. and we kind of have have a general feeling as to what the solution domain is, and you know. In a, in a discussion like this, we can just throw out anything that we want and basically it could all sound plausible. I, I count on that in many discussions. <laughs> well, but I often think in the popular, in popular discussions, I don't think it's a very grounded topic in the popular media and even popular technical media. So, so you're saying that, that AI or, or the advances of, of software, algorithms, whatever you want to say is – uh, it's certainly a technical advancement, but it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all the world's woes. I don't even think we know. <laughs> you know, I, I think we will find new problems that the computers can't solve. 
you know, if, if this AI advances, continues to advance to where I think we all dream it gets to, mm-hmm. new, unimaginable at this point or, or unimagined problems will come up that requires us to figure it out. So we can make the computer better to be able to solve those problems and it, it'll just continue. Yeah. I'm, I'm counting on the engineers. If the pro- if no problems exist, I count on the engineers to create problems so that they can solve those problems. Yeah. And by the way, if any of our listeners ever create an engineering robot, please do us a favor and destroy it. No, send me exactly <laughs> one. Send each of us, you know, in thanks for the, the wonderful work we've done on this podcast. Send us each one so we can not do our jobs and have the robot do it for us. Excellent. So there'd be there'd be the the Adam robot and the Brian mm-hmm. robot and the Jeff robot. Yes, mine would just cause trouble. Yeah, and, and and being Carmen's not here, he doesn't get a robot. Oh, but if we had a Carmen robot, he could have participated in the discussion this evening. Good point. Well, we've uh, we've kind of uh, beat upon the the idea of uh, relevance here for a while, so maybe we'll uh, we'll wrap this episode up and and uh, move on to something in in uh, a couple of weeks. I guess just my concluding remark would be that everybody's path is different. So your path to relevance is going to depend on your situation and your interests and that uh, nothing is permanent. Even if you don't think that you're relevant today, start working at it with a little persistence. You can get there, make yourself very valuable to the organization. I think I'm going to print up t-shirts that say choose relevance. Ooh, that's Hmm. good. I make a million dollars saying something ambiguous and affirming. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And uh, where does your T-shirt with the uh, don't be a thought hole go? Oh, on the back. <laughs> I like it. We can also make a destroy the engineering robot T-shirt. Ooh, very good. Oh. We may have to go into the T-shirt making business. I think yeah. we need some T-shirts. Thought hole. <laughs> Trademark. Engineering commons. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, let us wrap this episode up. And uh, we'll get together in a couple weeks and do this again. All right. See you next week, guys. Yeah. All right. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 